Hello, fellow time travelers. I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I'm Brooke. We're the Fiction Paradox, the only podcast dedicated to the BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world that we know of. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy, Enjoy your, your travels. Your travels. <laughs> <laughs> get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the Pinnacle American Editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Where you want, I would throw it. Hi, this is Louise Jameson and I play Leela on Doctor Who. Well, way back in the day, that is. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the rocky task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Sometimes it's more rocky than others. My name is Tony Witt and today we have a not at all rocky three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes and has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Good evening. If you like what you're hearing... Please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS. But not a Target book, since we know you have so many of those, you store them far away from land in a disused lighthouse. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we would like to thank our regular patrons, Deep Breath, 
Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Sky Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Ooh, that's hard to do in one breath. We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find them there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We now begin a season full of dicks. Terrence dicks, that is. With the start of Tom Baker's fourth season and Terrence dicks' novelization of... The Horror of Fang Rock. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Horror of Fang Rock, adapted by Terrence Dix from his own script that aired from 9377 to 92477, published by Target Books in March 1978. As of this recording in June of 2021, this title is currently out of print because available as an unabridged audiobook, 128 pages. Now, as I already implied, this season is the only season of Doctor Who in which every story is novelized by Terrence Dix. So for the next six books, we will be reading no one else. This is also the sixth book in an unbroken run of 11 books written by Dix, which may be the longest run of his we've done to date. The last non-Dix book we read was Mask of Andragora, which wasn't so much a break as it was a fracture. (laughs) So if it feels like we've had a lot of Dix lately, we have. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's been a while since we mentioned how much of a powerhouse Terrence Dix was with these books, so let me give you some context. This is the 40th Target book in publication order. Of these, Dix has already written 22, just over half. In 1977, he wrote eight of them, and the year this book was published, he'd go on to publish five. So it's not his biggest year, but it comes close. This is also the earliest book from this season that he adapted. The other five books from the season will be published in 1979 and 1980, with the last one, which is our, I think it's in three books, will be published as late as 1982. I couldn't find any reason for this, but looking at the publication dates through these years, I'm betting that Dix was dividing his time between novelizing what had just come out on television and novelizing older stories. And for a while there, the older stuff took precedent. It also means that the quality of the next five books may be variable, to say the least, even though there is Robert Holmes' script in there to look forward to. This is Dix adapting his own script again, though. And much like Brain of Morbius, it changed a lot between commission and transmission. He had originally submitted a script called The Vampire Mutation, but the BBC was planning its adaptation of Dracula that year, and it feared that if Doctor Who did its own vampire story, it would be seen as quote-unquote sending up the BBC's production. I know, right? That's kind of (laughs) ridiculous reasoning. Yeah. That script would eventually be resurrected. (laughs) See what I did there. Uh As State of Decay in Tom Baker's last season. Dix being Dix, he was able, at Robert Holmes' suggestion, to run up a strong script as a replacement, recalling both Wilfred Wilson Gibson's 1912 poem, Flan and Isle, which the Doctor quotes at the end of the story, and the Ray Bradbury short story, The Foghorn, in which an aquatic dinosaur is called from the ocean's depths because of a lighthouse foghorn. As far as I know, there's no movie that this actually pays homage to, probably because Philip Hinchcliffe isn't the producer any longer, so they're not doing movie callbacks, but (laughs) 
This is probably the last script for a while that we'll get a full-out gothic horror until, well, no, there's one more coming, but it's kind of an odd one for this season. Behind the scenes, things were changing for Louise Jameson as well. Graham Williams, the incoming producer, was true to his word about getting rid of the red contact lenses she had to wear the previous year, hence that scene at the end where her eyes change color. Mm. It was also during the story that she felt comfortable enough to stand up for herself and her character. For one thing, Dix had apparently written the script with a companion more akin to Sarah Jane Smith in mind. He even included a scene where Leela screams, and Louise Jameson pushed back to such a degree that appropriate changes were made which is interesting since most consider this to be a very strong Leela story. For another, in one of the scenes in The Lighthouse, Tom Baker kept entering in front of her instead of behind her, which is not what they had worked out in rehearsal. She insisted on three retakes until he got it right. That was enough to apparently earn his respect, and he soon apologized for his previous behavior, and she says that their working relationship was much smoother from then on, which is good to know. Mm -hmm interesting when people behave that way where they train you that the only way that they will respect you is if you give them the business yeah <laughs> yeah stop exactly. being so deferent and polite to me yeah well i think a lot of it too may have been that he saw that she was as committed to doing a good job with the series as he was i think that may have been some of it but hmm. whatever it was it, it helped even though you know it wasn't perfect he still wanted to go companion less but there we are <laughs> god so, back cover. Who's willing to do the back cover this time? Because I ain't. <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. Therefore, well. wriggling out of the labor and <laughs> shutting it off on the Dalton. Yeah. I don't choose to enact that labor. Okay, fine. <laughs> Dalton, would you be willing to do the honors? On a remote, rocky island a few miles off the Channel Coast stands the Fang Rock Lighthouse. There have always been tales of the beast of Fang Rock, but when the TARDIS lands here with Leela and the Doctor, the force they must deal with is more sinister and deadly than the mythical beast of the past. It's the early 1900s, electricity is just coming into common usage, and the formless, gelatinous mass from the future must use the lighthouse generators to recharge its system. Nothing can stop this Rutan scout on its search and its experimentation on humans. Man, I am glad I did not read that ahead of time or I would have known the whole plot. Me too. That gives away everything. <laughs> and it gets one bit wrong. That whole thing about it being from the future. It's not I'm from the say, future. Did I forget that? No, no. Yeah. It's it's from contemporary time. It's from the it's from that same era. Well, also the the bit about ex experimentation on humans. It's like, well, it's not really ex experimenting on humans it, it came into contact and it's like let me see what's going on with you guys one little autopsy <laughs> i mean yeah really. it makes it sound like there's like a, a secret lab that this thing is set up yes <laughs> to recharge its systems yeah pokes the body a little bit oh that's interesting yeah it's not trying to recharge its systems it, was... it briefly examines it doesn't design an experiment and carry yeah. it out and not like the Santarans. it doesn't no. adequately document the results very sloppy work. Yeah, oh. well, and you've only got tentacles and you shock everything you touch. It's like working in a lab during the wintertime when there's a lot of static. <laughs> While you have its tentacles, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, yeah precisely. <laughs> First impressions. Allison, you listened to the audio again, is that right? 
I did, and it was performed by Louise Jameson, which was delightful. Yes. What was your first impression? Well, I was actually very surprised that Reuben and Vince survived the prologue rather pleasantly. I thought, oh no, they're <laughs> in a Terrence Dix prologue, and the atmosphere is ominous. I, I always like a Terrence Dix prologue, but I liked the setting of it as a tremendous change, even though it's not much of a change in era, tremendous change in setting from the previous one. And I want to call it Doctor Who Yellowface. That's not the name of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Talons of Wang Chai Hang. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, we had a very intricate plot line, uh, multiple villains with various monologues, an urban setting that was very bustling and had a lot of different characters. And then we had some exquisite wordplay and like some of the worst racist BS that we've seen in any of these novels. This was a lot less of everything, much simpler plot, much simpler setting, very pared down cast, not a terribly verbal cast compared to what we had in the last few stories and not quite so politically charged, if you will, overall. Mm. So it was a nice break. Okay. I could see that. And not a fracture. Always good. Uh, Dalton, what was your first impression? Just the seeing the lighthouse on the cover kind of reminded me of the Outer Banks back home in North Carolina because they're known for their lighthouses. So already just from the cover, I was kind of getting this kind of gloomy, mysterious feeling. I'm not sure why the hat is different. <laughs> he he's wearing like a bowler hat instead he of the is. typical kind of floppy hat that's kind of got a bigger brim uh and then yeah he has this large amount of rope around his neck which i don't really recall any scenes where they use much rope but i did note that as well in the cover and thought it was going to come up in the story they have yeah. to pull the survivors in from the wreck of the schooner oh mm. okay yeah <laughs> so from just from the cover, I was getting so the doctor definitely has like a worried look on his face, uh, kind of inquisitive. And those they mentioned it a couple of times his kind of how did they phrase it? His kind of staring eyes. And, and one of them says that uh, some someone mentions that people with eyes like that are up to no good or they're not. <laughs> I don't remember exactly the phrase that they say, but, but yeah, it's the, the doctor has this look on his face. That's like the wheels in his head are spinning. You know, he's, he's trying to figure something out. Yeah. Palmerdale thinks that he's a crazy person and that Leela is his nurse. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is brilliant, especially since it shows you what a bad judge of character Palmerdale is <laughs> because he seems to think that Leela would yeah. nurse anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, she did with Toos, but she she liked Toos. She doesn't necessarily like anybody in this story. No. Well, and then towards the end, she requests to be euthanized uh, because she thinks she's gone blind. So I really don't think that she should be put in charge of caregiving for the disabled. Probably not. No, I, I don't think wow. the disabled actually exist in the seven team at all. <laughs> not for very long, apparently. No. no. Well, I, I quite enjoyed her phrasing of that, slay me, um, <laughs> you know, going going into Pride Month and the prevalence of drag <laughs> of drag queens, uh, you know, in, in pop culture. Slay has taken a totally new meaning. Drag her. Slay her. Sipping on that true tea, hunty. <sighs> Gag. <laughs> so, yeah. where I was thinking that she uh, might yeah. be part of Mr. Worf's family, he has a recurring problem with suicidal relatives <laughs> requesting to be honor killed. And no. himself, for that matter. Yes, yeah. yes. 
that and there is that weird moment where she asks the doctor if skin sales died with honor and it's like she doesn't ask that on screen so dix has made her interested in honor all of a sudden for mm-hmm. some god only knows reason it it reads weirdly but it makes her much more wharf like than usual yeah. well it's a nice moment for the doctor where he sort of glosses that over mm-hmm. uh for skin sales sake but you're right it's not not a great moment for her no no that's true and we've already jumped to the end of the story so <laughs> we've established that she is not a nurse no we have established that for sure but she does enjoy giving injections <laughs> She did find a knife. A very nice knife. She was quite fond of. And went back for it, even, and had that little bit of comic business running into the doctors they're running out. Which was still at the end of the story. Yes. We're kind of going at this one backwards, folks. Yes. Which is fine. This this was similar to the, the previous one I listened to in that it had sound effects, like it started with crashing wave noises and some fog horns and even a bit of music in places. So in some ways I felt like I was cheating and having a hi- more of a hybrid experience than when it's just a narrator. But it was still almost restful compared to the last one, even though a lot the body count is much higher. Oh god, yes. The Doctor and Leela are the only survivors of this bloodbath. And for that matter, you can even make the argument that the Doctor is responsible for most of the deaths. Really? Yeah, because that's the big reveal, isn't it? He realizes that he has locked the creature in the lighthouse with them. Mm. So he admits he's made a terrible mistake. And that's, that's actually an episode cliffhanger. And it's one of the most quiet and most effective cliffhangers in the entire series, to my mind. Leela, I've made a terrible mistake. I thought I'd locked the enemy out. Instead, I've locked it in with us. But it's like, oh, I thought we were all safe in here from it, and we're not. I've locked it in here with us, and now we're all going to die. And they almost all do, except for the Doctor and Leela. Yeah, that's one interpretation anyway. What do we make of this story? Some say that it's a very good Lilo story. In fact, one of our Goodreads reviewers said that it's probably one of the best Lilo stories. What did you all think? Whenever you were mentioning in the introduction about them kind of reworking it to make Lilo a stronger character, you know, taking away the screams, it feels like that was all given to Adelaide. <laughs> the screaming part. It, well, yes. yeah, it yeah seemed, I agree. It, it felt like she was just there to be the damsel in distress that was squeamish, you know, couldn't see the dead bodies. There's a line where she it just says, Adelaide fainted. Yes. Screaming. She's just she's just playing that stereotypical female part. And it would have been so atypical and against anything we've experienced with Leela so far to have her be that character. So as annoying as Adelaide was, I am at least glad that they did not have Leela doing any of those things. Exactly. I felt like they had good content for Leela, but had to set up this juxtaposition where Adelaide is the the stereotype and Leela is the only girl in the room. 
type character. Mm -hmm. She's the only girl who can actually handle the adventure, who can stand up to the situation, who's kind of equal to the challenge. And that has to be contrasted to the woman who is shrieking and socially petty and mostly concerned with money and reputation and, 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 and more minor things. And that, that didn't seem necessary in order to, to build up Leela more. Uh, but I guess we should go straight as we do uh, about every third week to the slap content. <laughs> so, when last we had a companions in a, a slapping, <laughs> a companion involved slapping, it was, I'm trying to remember, someone slapped Leela and she nearly killed him? Or did she slap a guy? No, she got slapped by uh, Ivanov in uh, Robots of Death. Mm -hmm. And she kicked him in the googlies. Yeah. Okay, I didn't remember the exact circumstance. So this time, uh, Leela slapped Adelaide. He says he thinks Lord Palmerdale's fallen for the lamp gallery. In a way that um, I, I don't think Adelaide really deserved it. it really? Was, it, well, it was, well, she's shrieking because she's afraid. Yeah. And it's, okay, I, I, I've never actually formally studied 80s feminist literary critique, but I think this is known as asserting the phallus. <laughs> Where Leela is an adequate equal to the task adventurer because she is, she's the acceptable female because she is explicitly anti-feminine in the circumstance. Yes, she is taking on a masculine role in the story, you're right. But dealing entirely with stereotypes of these things. Even then addressing like one of them. Instead of having Jamie, who did Jamie slap? Who did Jamie slap? I don't think Jamie slapped anybody. It was, uh, oh, Jamie slapped. Was it was it po <laughs> was it Polly that he slapped, or was that Ben? I think so it was. I know it was Underwater Menace because I asked Nigel Robinson about it when I interviewed him. But yeah. Anyway, so Leela slaps a girl, and in a way that uh, I actually thought took away from a lot of what they built up for Leela in the story. Really, I, th I think they went overboard in making her sort of the cruel, heartless, murderous savage. Except she is that. More so in this story than I feel like we've seen since the first story. Mm. So there's always like an element or a moment of, damn girl, maybe you should be less cold-blooded. I feel we had several moments like that here where she wants to be euthanized. She wants to slap, she slaps Adelaide. She is, oh, it was actually a really great line here. Empty threats, enjoy your death as I enjoyed killing you. Oh, yes. Mm. When she's gloating <laughs> sort of about Rutan. Sort of an imprecatory psalm. And uh, we're told that there is a, a savage grim of triumph, uh, which I actually thought was a great moment. The only one that I thought was, I thought it was overkill to have all of those moments in there. The only one I thought was actually ugly was the slap because all these slaps are ugly with the possible exception of the one where she hits back and it doesn't work out for the guy who's slapping her. Hmm. Actually, the more I read back over these moments, the more I think it works to have her still fairly savage in a way that's shown to be dark. Mm -hmm. uh, not just bad table manners, but no, she is violent and is a, a little on the bloodthirsty side. Yeah. Having her slap Adelaide was the moment that left the bad taste in my mouth. Hmm. Okay. It could very well be that Dick's in being asked to make the companion less companion-like may have gone the opposite direction. With a companion like Leela, though, it does tend to work, but maybe you're right. Maybe that moment is a little beyond the pale. You can also read it another way. Like the actual quote here is Adelaide let out a piercing shriek and immediately Leela slapped her face. And I can see why 
that could be I haven't actually seen the episode obviously in the moment that could be kind of gratifying yeah uh, to sort of slap all those moments that have happened before of a shrieking companion in the face not the companions not the actors not the characters themselves but the scenario where they're constantly shrieking so you can kind of read it either way I still strongly question the slapping therapy as a psychological technique I will say that the last time Adelaide uh, shrieks and faints, she really is actually killed and eaten by an alien. So she does have a point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. You're kind of surprised that the, the men aren't screaming more often. Oh, wait, they have silent screams, all of them. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's, there's a line in here, like directly after... Leela slaps Adelaide. Adelaide's talking about her astrologer seeing the danger in the stars. And Leela says, your astrologer? Oh, she's your shaman. And Leela says, it's a waste of time. I too used to believe in magic, but that was before the doctor taught me about science. It's better to believe in science. Mm -hmm. So she has this kind of moment where she's almost making herself better than Adelaide, saying that you're being childish, you're being stupid uh, in believing in astrology. I thought it was another sort of double-edged moment where it's weirdly flat and I felt like we haven't entirely built up to it. And yet we have had these moments where she discovers scientific principles and the doctor explains things to her. And then she, in almost every single story she's in, has this sort of moment of insight where even the doctor hasn't quite put together the different elements of the scenario and realizes, oh, she actually brought up a very interesting idea. But somehow it was kind of weirdly preachy that she just ended with this flat declaration, it is better to be to believe in science without, I don't know, some kind of example or something. Yeah. It just kind of felt like a children's education moment. On screen, it doesn't come off that way. On screen, it comes off as a moment where Leela is having almost a moment of self-realization where she's mm. thinking, this is how far I've come. I too used to believe in magic, but the doctor has taught me about science. It is better to believe in science. I used to be close to this person, apart from all the screaming, of course. It, it's not so much that she's making herself out to be better than Adelaide, though she is more capable in every single way than Adelaide. So if she did feel that way, she wouldn't be far wrong. See, in the circumstances, <laughs> she is. Now, what you're describing makes a lot more sense is what I was hoping for, and maybe the delivery was different. Yeah, I think that's what's going on there. But yeah, that does, that, that does work more with the development so far that she realizes that she now believes in science rather than the stars and and similar things similar to astrology. Yeah, she's put aside some of her savage ways, but not all of them. And she's never going to, which is a good thing because we wouldn't want her to. So she just hasn't really gotten into the ethics classes yet. No. In fact, the and doctor says the artist-based education doesn't want to get into a discussion of morality with her. Mm -hmm. I was actually relieved at that line because, man, that was some dark content right before. And if the doctor had not addressed her delight in killing, that would have been a disturbing moment. A bit. This, this story has a few disturbing moments, including the doctor outright lying <laughs> about what's going on in the lighthouse to everybody because he kind of has to in chapter five um, we're used to the doctor lying these days because the new series directly states the doctor lies but at this <laughs> point in the series history it's something of a rarity for him to lie so directly to someone's face the way he does with vince 
so as not to panic him, and then later about what's going on. There's nothing comfortable about this story, and I think that's one of the, th the things I like about it so much. And yet, in many ways, it was because it's such a simple monster movie type story mm -hmm. that it did go down very easily relative to the amount of bloodshed. Mm -hmm. And because it is a pretty straightforward linear plot. Yeah, this is much more horror-oriented than just about anything we've had so far, in a good way, I would say. What else stood out to you? What did you like or dislike? Well, speaking of all the, the bloodshed and the fact that the Doctor and Leela are the only two that make it out, through most of this, they keep talking about the story from 80 years before where there were three people on the island, two people died, and one person went mad. And so I kept hoping that somebody would live you know i kept mm. wanting uh, vince vince felt like the character that would make it out mm -hmm. um yes. you know being being the young green newbie on the island but somehow he would make it um so i was i was a little upset <laughs> whenever whenever he died because i figured ben's dead the <laughs> the uh I can't think of the name right now, but Leela kept calling him old man. Ruben. Ruben, yes. Uh, old man was dead or would, would die. So I kept thinking they keep pounding away that two people died, one person lived. Vince is going to live. Vince is going to live. Vince is going to live. All the people from the, from the yacht are expendable. I don't really like them anyway. Whatever. <laughs> they, they can die. But Vince has got to live. And Vince doesn't live. No. He's the one you're rooting for. Definitely, yeah. and it does not happen. I thought they were doing this, depending on who you count, two or three different trios. Three if you count the Dr. Leela and the TARDIS as a, trio, as a trio, but we don't realistically expect any of them to bite the big one. But Skinsale, Adelaide, and Palmerdale are a trio, and I thought Skinsale and Palmerdale would die and Adelaide would go nuts. Mm. <laughs> and between Reuben, Vince, and Ben, I thought Vince would survive, but be somehow driven crazy by the experience and i also like dalton was laboring under a misapprehension well i think a lot of it may be dick's taking his inspiration from that poem where there are no survivors because there's nobody there <laughs> and i i have to wonder what it's going to be like for the crew that comes out and has to find what's left in that lighthouse because they're going to find the bodies of tons of people who shouldn't be there as well as one well two of the lighthouse keepers if they find any remnants of the rootin' at all <laughs> so mm -hmm. and there was a, an interesting misdirection where i think was it the doctor or someone else who had the theory that what had happened 80 years earlier was one guy killed another one and the one who and then threw himself into the sea in guilt. And the one who survived went crazy because he was just there with a body for some period of time. Yes. So when we first had Skinsale and Palmerdale arguing, I thought that's the direction that they were going in. I see. That actually is new to the book. That's something that Dix adds the doctors uh, reasoning it out and saying, well, this is probably what happened 80 years ago, if that even happened at all, which is okay. interesting. But yeah, it is a brilliant bit of misdirection because you think, oh, this is foreshadowing of the way the story is going to go. Nope, not in the least. One of the last movies, well, when I say the last movies I saw in the theater, in the year before, we didn't go to movies for a year, um, was The Lighthouse. Ah. 
which was, I never saw there's something about Mary, but I remember at the time, the first couple of weeks it came out, there being a sort of, oh my gosh, reaction where people thought they were going to see a somewhat off-color romantic comedy and didn't realize they were going to see a gross-out movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I went to the lighthouse thinking that I was going to see kind of an eccentric art house film and did not realize that is that and also a gross-out movie where one sees every variety and volume of bodily fluid uh, that uh, one can expect to see with two dudes on an island. Anyway, it has kind of a similar premise in that it deals with two people being isolated at a lighthouse, and one is... greatly senior to the other and there is there is a story about people coming to the island and going mad and the younger lighthouse keeper will always go mad and like i said i haven't seen it for a while so i might be misremembering it so the production in my mind of this was gorgeous black and white (laughs) and uh had a lot of the same kind of creepy overtones i actually love a lighthouse story because i think it's sort of an interesting social situation to have this artificial artificially tiny society of two or three people mm-hmm. but it's a situation with an expiration on it mm-hmm. so i thought it worked for a claustrophobia in a, in a wide open space the the sets for the story are amazing and when they do the outside shots it looks like it's location work as far as i can tell as far as i've been able to find in my research it isn't was it filmed in a quarry? Uh, no. <laughs> no, not this time. It, it really is impressive. In fact, the only part of it that's not impressive, and it, this is a bit that I took, um, I had to edit out one of the uh, reviews, said that the breaking up of the ship is a fairly badly realized effect. And it, it is. You can't do a shipwreck very well if you're trying to do it in the studio with miniatures. But the rest of it looks amazing and it is terrifying even the rutin which people give this story a lot of stick for well the rutin comes off much more interesting on the page because it's described with many more features than it has on screen it's basically just a big green jellyfish on screen i like that the rutin is basically an absentee villain for much of the story yeah Mm -hmm. I, i was wondering what you'd think about that well at the beginning we have this malevolent consciousness that's contemplating how it's going to uh, study these creatures and dispose of them. But we don't know who or what is thinking these thoughts until well over three quarters of the way through the story and find out who or what is offing people. So I thought that worked great for the for the gothic atmosphere. Hmm. Okay. Dalton, did you feel the same way? Yeah, and in a lot of ways, it built up maybe that it could have been like another person. Mm. It could It could have been, you know, someone at the lighthouse. Yeah, We know, yes, that it was an alien spacecraft, but from the perspective of the people on the island, they just know that strange things are happening, you know, mm-hmm. and people are disappearing and people are dying, but no one's seeing anything happen. They're hearing this crackling, but it just creates this environment and this atmosphere of suspicion. Um, it's kind of like a whodunit, but we as the reader know who did it. But all the characters could feasibly, you know, point the finger at anybody else. Well, and we kind of know who did it, but all we know is some kind of alien presence crash landed. But we certainly don't know yet it's an amphibious electric eel um, <laughs> or somewhere. Well, a re- electric amoeba, but it, well, it could turn out to be one of our regular cast of villains or, you know, some, so, someone or something that would be familiar to us. It is related 
to something that would be familiar to us, because it turns out that these are the creatures that the Santarans have been fighting against for millennia. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that Dix does this odd bit of editorializing in Chapter 10 when he says even the Santarans were preferable, and that was saying something. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. But he does have a point because in the new series, we do have Santarans who are good guys, but we never see that with the Rutans or the Rutan yeah. because they refer to themselves in the uh, singular or plural or something like that. I have no idea. So it wasn't a disappointment to find out that it was just a bog standard Doctor Who monster from space. Mm-mm. Oh, no. good. That's good. (laughs) I don't think anyone reacts to it that way either because, well, my worry, because I was reading it this time, trying to read it from the point of view of somebody who hadn't read these or seen them before. And I was thinking that revelation that this alien scout has crash landed here. He's about to bring down a mothership. The mothership, if it's allowed to land, will essentially wipe out all life on the planet. Yeah, just by drawing fire to Earth. Mm -hmm. And they have no interest in the humans living there whatsoever. They see them as primitive bipeds. It's like, whoa, that escalated quickly. Yes, which I thought worked very well. Oh, good. Okay, I was wondering. It's supposed to be something like, something thought to be a ghost that was actually an alien looking for its lost child or something like that. Well, we know, imme- we know immediately that the alien is malevolent because it wants to study and dispose of us, and we do not enjoy that. Uh, but we do not know immediately that there might be such grand plans. I thought the sudden escalation worked. Good. Okay. Did it work mm-hmm. for you as well, Dalton? Yeah, yeah. The the idea that Earth is just part of their battlefield. Right. Is and and the humans are inconsequential. They're not worried about humans posing any threat to them. The only reason that he dissects someone is to find out kind of how we work. But once he does that, he's like, Oh, this is totally easily dealt with. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he finds out how weak humans actually are physically yeah I, I just find it really interesting that the story turns so quickly from a claustrophobic base under siege variant to one in which the entire earth is threatened and it's all in in the turn of one scene but it mm-hmm. still works as the with the image of an insignificant rock mm. where the lighthouse is on a rock in the sea and the earth is in you know this expanse of the cosmos the lighthouse is not that important it, or the body of land that's on is not that important compared to the rest of the Earth. Then the Earth is not that important in this cosmic battle between the Rutan and the Centaurans. I, I thought the parallel they were drawing. Nice. Actually, mm-hmm. I did not see that, but you're right. The lighthouse is a microcosm of what Earth is for the rest of the universe. It's a, it's a backwater. Nobody really cares about it. And if it gets destroyed, no one's really going to care. Wow. And this wasn't about the vastness of the sea so much. And at one point they say, well, we're only five miles off land. It's not that far away. But it's it's still, there is a term for this reverse claustrophobia, where it's like the fear of the vast limitless space. This this story doesn't do because they're not that far out in the sea, but it does sort of hover around the edges, I thought. Yeah, it does have that feeling to it, doesn't it? What else? So Leela starts off with, oh, is the machine broken again? (laughs) <laughs> There's a very funny exchange where the doctor saying, no, 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 it's just this happened and this interface failed. And uh, I can't see because it's foggy, okay? Uh, <laughs> and then, so here, you know, the doctor is centuries older than Leela. 
and uh, has all these experiences of time where she um, her experiences are very limited. And then we have a sort of reverse approach on the island where we have Reuben is quite old, perhaps actually elderly, but he prefers the previous gaslight technology. Mm-hmm. And then we have Vince, who is much younger and prefers the new electric technology. And Ruben and Leela are actually interesting on sort of the same wavelength where, you know, Leela's saying, oh, it's the machine broken again. And Ruben, you know, says when the electric light comes back on, well, you know, working, not working, working again. You really <laughs> never know where you are with it, do you? <laughs> and I thought that was an interesting contrast. Yeah, the, the young versus old thing. Because you think that Leela and Vince would have a similar position. It was the opposite. Well, that and the doctor even kind of mutters at one point yeah probably we would have been safer if this had been an oil lighthouse still because then the creature wouldn't have been drawn to it mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> just although enough technology. Vince seems to think that it might have all burned them to burn to the ground with them in it quite a ways before because those lighthouses were so dangerous well that's true but there's just enough technology to make it dangerous for everybody and not enough to fight off the peril from another world that is going to kill all of them. And you don't necessarily need a technician to figure that out. <laughs> I love that, <laughs> that he gives Leela that line, that callback. Yes. <laughs> and that she can't figure out simple things. Well, not really simple things. But she does that whole thing that all of us do when we're given a complicated set of instructions... And we can't remember them because they're so unusual to us. So she repeats them over and over again and still manages to get them wrong when she finally gets them to the person they're supposed to get to. Yes. <laughs> Just a brilliant moment. And calling the signal modulator the magnal singulator. <laughs> Just totally mixing it up. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I kind of wish that Dix had gone the route that they went with in the televised version because when the Rutan is revealed, you hear its actual voice, and its actual voice is this high, reedy alien thing. On screen, they simply have the actor who does Ruben do his own voice as the, the Rutan. He doesn't have all the, you know, vocal characterization that Ruben does in character, but they have the actor essentially do the Rutan's voice as well. And it is actually quite brilliant. It works really well. But they don't do he doesn't do that on the page for some reason. What else did we like these secondary characters were they well fleshed out for us do we wish that i don't know one of them had died quicker (laughs) (laughs) palmerdale and adelaide are annoying (laughs) and immediately i did not really like either of them skin sale and was it harker yeah harker seems to be the only one that's kind of likable skin sale is more of a complicated character and we do get a little insight into kind of how he works with the whole story with palmerdale basically blackmailing him to get information that he can use to sell stocks mm-hmm. which echoes back to some recent things we've had happening here in the united <laughs> yes. states i think three out of the four of them are complicated people that i don't really care for and the fourth one is someone that seems like a hard worker that just in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> right. 
And there's also a hint there of what the story was originally going to be because vampire mutations, Dracula, Harker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's Dick's good. Well, that's what, maybe that's where they were going. And I apologize. Earlier, I mixed up who was maybe going to kill Palmerdale was Harker and not Skinsale. Oh, yeah. Although they both did give it a, a thought or two. They did. They mm-hmm. did. So no one thought that any of that extra plot about the blackmail and the bribes and all that was too extraneous or the, did it fit right in for you? It's a lot like the you know, Jurassic Park plot starter that it's the person trying to steal the embryos and sell them at a profit who creates a catastrophe. Oh. That it's a very petty greed that causes so much of the death because that ship wouldn't have crashed or wouldn't have, you can tell I'm not a nautical person. Not crash, what's the word I'm looking for? Run aground? Yes, that ship wouldn't have run aground if Palmerdale had not exerted every bit of authority he had to sail more aggressively in those conditions. Mm -hmm. And all four of those people died because of that. And Skinsale might have survived if he hadn't gone back for the diamonds. Mm -hmm. And I thought one of the most nihilistic elements of the story is Skinsale dies because he goes back to gather the diamonds. And it's not even particularly greedy. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense in the context, but just that that extra amount of time is, is what dooms him. Yeah. But then we thought Vince is going to survive partly because when he thinks he's going to be framed for killing Palmerdale, he sets all the cash that Palmerdale gave him on fire and he talks about what a relief it was. Now, it was more money than he'd ever see again in his life, but what a relief it was to see it burning up and blowing away. So the fact mm-hmm. that he also does not make it yeah. was pretty dark. Yeah, he literally will never see that much cash again in his life. <laughs> and Ruben and Vince and Ben don't have that element. I mean, they would have been there anyway. They would have died anyway. But those other four people, all of them were doomed by Palmerdale's greed. Yeah. Well, arguable, I guess, I'm trying to think, if Vin, would Vince have died if he wasn't going to operate the telegraph for the inside trade? I don't remember the circumstances of where he was. Yeah, he w- he was up in the room where the light was. Yeah, he was the in, fo- the in the foghorn. He, he, was, he was doing his job, and Palmerdahl came to him. Yeah. So he would have always been there. Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly dark story, which is probably why I love it so much, but there we go. <laughs> Well, usually I don't like 70s Victorian Gothic. Mm-hmm. Well, Edwardian in this case. I guess I'm, I'm thinking of it as like 70s Gothic as being so like debased in both senses of the word that it's like anything from like 1750 to 1916 or so. You know, that sort of 60s and 70s pop Gothic aesthetic. Yeah. It's not terribly concerned with historical accuracy. And it often has sort of bright colors used as a contrast to, uh, I don't know, sort of, sort of pop color aesthetic contrasted against a, a really dark aesthetic. I need visual examples here of what I'm trying to describe in, uh, um, auditorially. Uh, but I thought the lighthouse worked a lot better than the typical mansion on the moor setting for those kinds of stories. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Please edit that whole thing out. That, <laughs> that just drifted around in the fog. Like the ship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and ran aground. <laughs> On my way to an inside trip. No, I, I, I get it, though. Let, let me rephrase it. Often I am not at all charmed by a 1960s and 1970s attempt at a gothic aesthetic. But I thought the lighthouse setting for this worked much better than the usual sort of dirty London or creepy 
mansion out on the moors setting that we often see, saw for those kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's much more effective as a quasi-haunted house setting, even though it's not a haunted house at all. Yeah, just because of the remoteness of it, for one thing. And I thought it was a nice touch that they do deal with the fact that the technology that seems old-fashioned to us is very cutting-edge at that moment, the electric lights, etc. Exactly. Um, It's worth noting that Robert Holmes demanded that Terrence Dix do research on lighthouses. (laughs) when he wrote the story (laughs) so everything that's in here is essentially accurate and that may be why we for instance learn so much about um someone in one of the comments on this book said why do we have to learn so much about their shifts and it's like well it's because dicks had to and he needs to put it in there somewhere he even has the doctor chide leela about breaking through a door at one point but on screen he actually says the malicious damage act 1861 covers lighthouses what nothing (laughs) (laughs) damaging a lighthouse (laughs) exactly so it's like oh yeah you can tell that he was forced to do this research and by damn he's gonna put it in there (laughs) <laughs> well, and there's a danger of showing that a character is so physically tough and accomplished that everything seems easy to them. So it was a it was a nice humor moment that instead of just quickly and easily breaking down the door, all Leela can manage to do is sort of hammer a small hole into it and peek through it and see what's <laughs> yeah. on the other side. Yeah. Here's Leela. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is very trained. She's very experienced. She is buff. She's not super powered. Yeah. So that, that worked. That's true. Come to think of it, this story really, now that I think of it, it does owe a lot more to Dracula than we've been talking about because both stories are gothic, but both stories also deal with modern technology, which is useless in the face of the threat that's in front of it, even though in Dracula, the technology is what ends up giving them the edge. In this case, no edge at all. See, that was me running around because I went off on a completely different point. <laughs> oh, dear. So, anything else before we go to Goodreads? I will say that I had, uh, my brain pay- played me a very interesting playlist for this that started with the score of The Lighthouse. And then when Leela was talking about how it's better to believe in science and astrology, sometimes how the brain brought up the theme from 321 <laughs> Contest. Probably because it's the right era for this episode, 1977. That's around the height of the 321 Contest era. <laughs> And then, of course, the best part of Three to One Contact was the Bloodhound Gang. Oh yes. So that that the yes. So those are kind of uh, solving mysteries here, and often you know those mysteries seem to be about ghosts or similar, and it turns out to be about like electrical relays. Uh, so that played, and then uh, went to the worst activist song of all time, which is of course, if I had a lo- rocket launcher. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe the worst song ever. I don't know. There are so many candidates for that. So the rocket launcher figured a lot more prominently than I expected. And then uh, the soundtrack ended with the slightly altered lyrics, gonna burn my red eyes blue. (laughs) So an interesting musical journey. (laughs) Thanks to the Spotify of the brain. Oh, dear. All brought to you by an early Shamarly. (laughs) <laughs> Good God. oh i also like that don't fire until you see the green of its tentacles <laughs> yes I, I, I was easy to please this time and i did consider that perhaps the uh, subtitle of our podcast should be like the cry of a lovesick sea monster 
I'll take that under consideration. <laughs> <laughs> Dalton, anything else to add? No, looking through my notes, I think we've we've covered basically everything. So, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's do it. Alright, as we always do, let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment on our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.92, which is a tenth of a point higher than the previous book. Really? That surprises yeah. me. The reviews from our Goodreads group, again, have been at a different length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives this four stars and says, A great read. I do wonder why they don't hide more in the TARDIS sometimes. Yeah, they had the TARDIS <laughs> that whole time. They could have just gone there. Another bloodthirsty story where no one survived except the Doctor and Leela. Well, that doesn't happen that often, but yeah. Our Patreon, Dave Davis, gives it three stars and says, I would give this one two and a half stars if Goodreads would let me, but I'll round it up rather than down because of the original story and the circumstances of Dick's writing it. Dick seems to work better under pressure when writing scripts than he does writing books. Like the previous story, this one had plenty of atmosphere on screen. Unlike the previous story, it didn't, as far as I could tell, have the problem of racism. Um, you get, you get Ruben's comments about foreigners, but they're, they're they barely register. Any bigotry on the show seems to be from the Edwardian characters rather than from the program makers. True. Unfortunately, the atmosphere on television was lost for me in the book, and I found it clunky. If we really needed to know, for example, about the shift patterns of the lighthouse crew, we could have learned it by Vince's anticipation of shore leave, rather than stopping the story for what was effectively a footnote inserted into the body of the text. There was one very obvious improvement to a line from Tom Baker. For some reason, he pronounces chameleon as chameleon. <laughs> then, in the same sentence, claims that shape-shifting is sometimes known as lycanthropy. He does this on screen, in fact. Lycanthropy involves changing shape into other animals. So he isn't entirely wrong, but it almost always concerns werewolves. Thankfully, Terrence Sticks took the time to get rid of that. If only he'd taken the time to write a better book. Oh, I see Ooh. what you did there. And finally, Brett Fitzpatrick gives it five stars and says, Another masterful work by Terrence Sticks. This should be made into a stage play. It actually would work as a stage play. The whole thing happens on a tiny, rocky outcrop in the ocean, but you were given a Chthonian glimpse of the horrors out there among the stars. Ooh, I love that word. All right, so let's hear what your opinions were. Dalton, out five stars, <laughs> what would you give this? I would give it a three. I would agree with Dave. I don't think there's anything necessarily egregious with the writing. I do feel like the atmosphere is there, but again, I haven't seen the the televised story, and from what you've said, that really nails it. But I, I felt like I, I got the the feeling of where we were with this one. The secondary characters, the original three lighthouse keepers, uh, I liked. Again, I wish that Vince would have made that alive. <laughs> Didn't really care for the second set that came in from the yacht. But I felt like this was a fun story. It definitely got me kind of in the mood to watch some horror movies, and I don't really do that a lot because I'm a big wuss. I don't <laughs> scream like Adelaide. <laughs> 
but I do not like to watch horror movies. <laughs> so, Next question is, who do you scream like? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to is there someone around um, to slap you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never been slapped for screaming. But, uh, but yeah, this one... <laughs> not for screaming, apparently. <laughs> you, you know. Um, <laughs> you can just keep teasing better and better personal stories. <laughs> oh, <God>. Anyway, yes. <laughs> it, anyway, so yeah, three three stars for me. This this one felt like something that I would enjoy reading in autumn instead of in late spring. But mm. but it was mm. I I felt it was really enjoyable. So okay, and Allison, I'm gonna go three stars as well, and I have two kinds of melancholies about this story, one which is satisfying and one which is not. This is not the st- one of the stories where everyone lives. <laughs> so the, the the melancholy that is satisfying in a way is that it is so dark that no one survives. And that seems cathartic with the year we've just had. I knew many people who had a bad time with COVID and none of them died. And then several people who died in un-COVID related circumstances where a lot of people have had a year like that, where it's actually nice to be able to channel some of those emotions into a story that is not like my personal experience, having never been stranded on a, 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 a lighthouse island with an amphibious space alien who electrocutes people. You know, the summer's young. I could still experience it. <laughs> so, so in that way, it was actually like a, a satisfying downbeat story. Mm-hmm. And I, the, the bummer downbeat is I've enjoyed all the stories with Leela in them. That in this story and the last one, Leela's development seems to have to come at the expense of, you know, the stereotypical silly woman or the yellow face stereotype. And that I, I like a lot of the development that they have done. It seems very unnecessary that it has to be at the expense of these thin characters that are drawn up to contrast her. Okay. So overall, I enjoyed the atmosphericness and simplicity of it compared to the the more sprawling stories that we've had recently. It did not reach the heights or the depths of, of the last one that we read, but it was a good, simple, contemplative mood story. Okay. With good character notes. All right. Man, I'm sad about Vince. <laughs> I can tell. And as for me, I'm probably going to shock both of you and give this a four. Mainly because it really does capture the story so well. And I really enjoy the hell out of this story very much. So Dix, when he adapts Dix, is pretty good. Not consistently. Not always. I, I think we had some difficulties with the the giant robot for instance and i know we will have some difficulties coming up with a story that i'm thinking about this one however he nails it he nailed the original story he nails the novelization he is not adapting someone else's work for once he knows exactly what he intended with these characters and what he was trying to do with them he gives whatever explanation was missing on screen because some of that stuff with Skinsay on Palmerdale wasn't actually on screen, or at least it wasn't as explicit. So it's a lot stronger here. There's a lot of stuff that's a lot stronger here, and I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this one. And I know it's rare for me to give a Dick's book anything higher than a 3.5, but that's what I'm going to do this time, give this one a 4. I heartily approve. Well, good. All right. Well, thank you, guys. 
And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we get another dose of dicks with his novelization of The Invisible Enemy. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe. And enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.